Good morning, everybody. I'm going to give everyone a moment to populate the Facebook page. Welcome to the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association's Facebook page. And this live broadcast of what will be uh, on our podcast, Tales from the Heart, in the next couple of days. And today we are joined by Robert Blum from Cytokinetics, where he is in the position of president and CEO. And for those of you who do not know, Full disclosure, Cytokinetics is a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, a podcast, as well as the Big Hearted Tour of the HCMA, and they have been great partners in this last couple of years that we've gotten to know each other. So welcome, Robert, to our Facebook page and to Tales from the Heart. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be with you. Well, you're you're in California now, right, or are you on the East Coast? I'm in California in San Francisco. You're in San Francisco. I'm in New Jersey, and it's 2020, so of course... We're on Zoom. Um, I think the T-shirt of the year should say, Zoom, you're on mute, and we just point to our T-shirts from here on out. So we won't have any of that today. So we invited you here to the HCMA page and to Tales from the Heart to discuss a couple of exciting elements of the future of HCM and some projects that are going on. But I really want people to understand pharma from a larger and broader perspective And I think that starts at leadership. And I want them to understand who is at the helm guiding these processes. So I'd like to know a little bit about where you developed your interest in the pharmaceutical industry and where it started for you. So I appreciate that question. Um, I actually wrote an opinion editorial a couple of days ago about how I believe uh, pharma, both big pharma and emerging biopharma, are very misunderstood. Um, There are certainly bad actors in our industry, to be sure, but I think the vast majority of leaders and scientists and people associated with these companies are in it for the right reasons. So I appreciate the question. Your question was about my path uh, to pharma. And I'll tell you, it's a bit odd. Uh, It started a long, long time ago, earlier than probably for most people when they think about uh, what they're doing in high school and careers. But I grew up in a small town in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and I went to a small school and I had a biology teacher uh, and we were five people in a class. And he opened my eyes to all of the remarkable, extraordinary things occurring in a biological revolution. Granted, this goes back to the 1970s, and it was the late 1970s, and I became very inspired about a biological revolution associated with DNA technologies. We called them back then genetic engineering, recombinant DNA. There were incredible opportunities. There were also very meaningfully important ethical issues associated with these new biological insights And he and I would spend uh, lots and lots of time together talking about new science and new opportunities and there being a opportunity for people with the right-minded values and purpose to steer this new revolution in a way that could be impactful for good. And as we were then in um, North Carolina, he pointed me to much of this work was being pioneered by uh, scientists and new companies on the West Coast. And it was one of those sort of uh, corny, go West young man sort of scenarios. But he uh, prompted me and inspired me to apply to Stanford where a lot of this work was being done at the university and where I could pursue my undergraduate studies in science and business. And at the same time, this was again, late 1970s, there was a birth of a new type of industry, a biotechnology industry occurring. And whereas a lot of young men or young women might have had sports heroes that they idolized, I was that odd guy that had a picture of Bob Swanson on my bulletin board. He was on the cover of Business Week back then as a labeled biotech guru because he had taken his company Genentech public and was building an entirely new pharmaceutical business around biology. And I just thought that was incredibly fascinating. 
again, a reason why uh, I should be on the West Coast learning from and, and working alongside of these types of brilliant minds who had good noble intentions for science. So that's how it got started. Um, I thought the opportunity to blend an interest in business and science and be in a position to do that while um, the biological revolution was occurring uh, was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I made my way to uh, Stanford. I studied biology and economics together, but most of my time, frankly, that wasn't spent in the classroom was spent doing internships with companies like Genentech and otherwise that were birthed on the West Coast. And that's how I got started in this industry as the biopharma industry was itself launching at that time in the early 1980s. So it's been a long time. I can walk you through sort of the other uh, steps along the way, but that's how it all got started. Kind of sounds like looking back at it from a 2020 perspective that you were kind of in the right place at the right time for this passion. If, if you think about 2020 hindsight, you could absolutely say that. Um, I think I was the right place at the right time. I had the right mentors and people to inspire me to do what I wanted to do. Um, and it was uh, an environment of bio-entrepreneurship that existed uh, on the West Coast in the Bay Area, unlike in any other area at that time. And I was drinking it all in. I had opportunities to work for some of the uh, greatest visionaries in science and in business who together were combining those passions in a way that um, helped me find a path. And so I'm going I'm to pause you there for a second no. because you brought up a word that I wanted to talk to you about, and that is bio-entrepreneurism. What is that for people who don't know? So it's a term that is used to describe uh, building new businesses around biology. And keep in mind that back in the early 1980s, there was no prescription for this. There was no roadmap for how these types of companies could be constructed. There was no way of looking at peer group companies and figuring out how might you capitalize these companies? How might you organize the scientists around that which they'd be doing? There was hardly a regulatory path for new medicines that were built around biology. All of that had to be architected um, and built. And that was what these companies like Genentech were doing. Having had an opportunity to uh, soak it all in, so to speak, I was working for both for um, biotech companies and I was doing internships while I was also a student with companies that had sort of arrived, but through more classical pharmaceutical sciences, a company called Syntex based in Palo Alto that I worked for in the early 1980s, where I got exposed for the first time to cardiovascular medicines. I'll come back to that, I'm sure, later. But working for Syntex, working for these other biotech companies taught me that there was a way of merging that which the pharmaceutical companies had done previously, built around chemicals, and that which the biological-based companies aspired to do. And taking from each, we were able to establish new companies that um, built an industry. And San Francisco in the Bay Area is the birthplace of the biotechnology revolution, if you will, and it's obviously taken on more and more dimensions throughout uh, the world. But the roots and the anchor for that industry are here. And many of those minds came out of academia and with noble purpose decided that they wanted to bring new medicines to patients uh, based on new biologies. So I take it that during your educational years, you were a real slacker and didn't... Uh jump into everything you could possibly learn from. My goodness, you, you had an interesting uh, opportunity, and then you just jumped right into to trying to figure out how to turn it into a business while working I, I also had a, a Hawaiian. I, I also had a Hawaiian sunwear business that we won't talk about so much, but it, it taught <laughs> me about small business, and I was going campus to campus selling uh, tiki trunks shirts and shorts that uh, we were making and that generated some additional cash flow 
to help me through college. You're like a Shark Tank story here. You've been an uh-huh. entrepreneur since the beginning, right? I love that. Um, you know, the funny thing is about bio-entrepreneurism, I, I think I kind of took some cues from that type of an initiative when starting a, an organization to help patients. You know, it, the model that we use is not a typical one here at the HCMA. We go a little bit more in-depth than some other organizations into understanding the science of HCM. So we're science, patient advocacy, and, you know, partnerships. So um, I really do resonate with a lot of what you're saying about how do, how do you put all of these moving pieces together to help society. So absolutely, let, let's dive into that a little bit. You know, we I, I've been to your campus. I've I've met your staff or many of them, um, but I was taken a little bit um, by surprise by the corporate culture, and, and and this is in a very positive way. So can you tell me what the corporate and civic responsibilities mean to you and how they connect? Yeah, I, I embrace a different kind of model in thinking about business and leadership. And I think at Cytokinetics, we as a company, and it takes all of us to do it together, have built a culture that uh, is distinguished from a lot of companies. Um, you can't be in this business recognizing the risks, recognizing how challenging it is and the timelines without a North Star. And for us, from the beginning, our North Star has been to serve patients. And I admit that that's not the case for um, all companies, but it certainly is the case for ours. And at Cytokinetics 201, every single one of us joins together with uh, inspiration from patients to be in a position to advance our science, to mine our area of biology as can benefit them and their lives. And that includes their family members and caregivers. So when you ask me about corporate responsibility, civic engagement, they really go hand in hand. All of our employees are encouraged to participate in activities on uh, company time that Uh, has them engaging in our communities, not just our patient communities, but our uh, local metro communities, so that education and awareness and science teaching, all of that goes hand in hand with working at Cytokinetics. Our employees are involved in things that are not necessarily even serving Cytokinetics self-interest. And I think that's the real test of authenticity. If we're helping to elevate patient voice, meeting the patients where they're at and working to uh, serve their needs, whether those relate to care services, whether that relates to public policy initiatives. It helps uh, resonate through our laboratories that uh, this is our purpose bigger than ourselves. And I don't think you can distinguish between our corporate and our civic um, responsibilities by uh, giving back I think it reinforces the meaningfulness of what we're doing. And that's not just rhetoric. That's truly uh, how we think at our company. We're change agents. We're paying forward many of the privileges that we've enjoyed in order to be able to advance a science that will benefit patients and their caregivers. And that's important because it helps blur the lines between what we do personally and what we do professionally. Um, We ask a lot of our employees every single day, they work extremely hard, but by knowing that they're uh, doing something uh, so important, um, it's, I think, much more reinforcing the positives and enabling us, frankly, to be also resilient and persistent because in science, it's always two steps forward, one step back. And I think our employees, by knowing that they're serving a purpose bigger than themselves, have an opportunity to weather those storms, pick themselves up when there are disappointments, and always move forward, recognizing that uh, we're here to deliver something, promise of our science for patients. So let's twist that and take a turn down the why am I talking to you line. So with all of that advancement in civic responsibility and bio-entrepreneurism, 
Um, you landed on a molecule that seems to be handy for those with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And uh, many years ago, walking through, I believe it was the American Heart Association exhibit floor, I was stopped in my tracks by a moving cardiac sarcomere. And I went, I love these people. This is awesome because they, they, they understand me. And I stopped during the setup while your mechanics were putting this machine together for the first time. I'm like, can I take a video? They're like, okay. And I was so excited to see a sarcomere moving. So where did you guys come up with an interest in HCM? And did it start in some other muscle issues that you were interested in? How did I get all excited that day seeing a cardiac sarcomere model? So firstly, we, we both might be a bit nerdy in that we both get excited about a sarcomere. But So not everybody may know what a sarcomere is. So a sarcomere is the fundamental unit within muscle cells that drives contractility and generates force and power in muscle. It's the biomachinery of muscle. And frankly, going back to uh, high school, it's something I learned about in high school it's a very elegant structure that uh, has evolved uh, to enable um, muscle force and power. And the biochemistry, if you will, the biophysics of it were characterized in the academic labs of our scientific founders, but it had not yet been industrialized for pharmaceutical research the way we did at Cytokinetics. And frankly, this goes back some time. Our company is not a young company, we're never going to be accused of being an overnight success. We've been at this for 22 years already, mining this area of biology, the cytoskeleton, which is the area of biology that uh, relates to mechanical activities of cell behavior. Within that biology is muscle biology and sarcomere biology. So for over 20 years now, our scientists have been uh, working with this structure, screening millions and millions and millions of compounds against the proteins that comprise this structure, looking for activators, those compounds that can augment cardiac muscle contractility and function and performance, or suppress it, inhibitors. And those compounds have served as the starting points in our company for a lot of additional in vitro and in vivo biology and chemistry and analytical methods and in vivo translational sciences in animal models. As we've advanced these chemical compounds, small molecule compounds that bind to the sarcomere, activate these proteins or inhibit them as would be potential drugs, ultimately as would be investigational medicines that would enter clinical trials and over many years be characterized for their potential to be potential medicines. So we've been a pioneer in this area in that our scientific founders were the first to um, elucidate how these proteins work together. Our company and our scientists were the first to apply that to high throughput screening and look for compounds that could be ultimately modulating that biology as could be new medicines. So it's all we know, it's all we do. We're the leaders in the area of muscle biology as it relates to potential new pharmaceuticals. And we've been at this for a long time. So we're, we're in the game for 25 years. You're in the game for 22. And it probably took us, you know, 20 to finally like actually start you know, getting on the same page. So what is a myosin modulator? What, what are we talking about that might be useful for those with HCM? And here is where I will pause for the regulatory issues. Cytokinetics is in a phase two trial um, on a compound that might be useful in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Clinical trials are not a, you know, they're not a, an answer to everything that we know. They're meaning we're trying to learn more. We're trying to 
gain better perspective on whether this agent will really be meaningful for those with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And there are a few clinical trials in a similar space right now. So I want to talk about what Cytokinetics is working on and why why we're um, cautiously optimistic. So Cytokinetics has discovered a number of compounds that are inhibiting myosin in cardiac muscle cells and as may ultimately demonstrate to be useful as a new medicine for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathies. As you know better than anybody, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a disease linked to genetic causes, which produces a hypercontractile uh, ventricle where there's a hypercontractility that is contributing to pressure gradients and symptoms and other uh, risks and issues associated with this disease diagnosis. And we've learned a tremendous amount about the genetics. We've learned a lot about uh, how those point mutations in cardiac myosin give rise to this disease and where that could be potentially um, ameliorated with uh, compounds that could inhibit the activity of cardiac myosin and thereby relax a hypercontractile ventricle and reduce pressures and produce symptom relief and other uh, potential clinical effects. We've learned this through uh, work that we've pioneered at Cytokinetics and as has also contributed to the launch of a company called Myocardia that took forward a first generation drug candidate discovered um, under a collaboration and as a spin out of our research and as we've continued to uh, innovate in this space, we've come now forward with a next generation drug candidate called CK274. And as you point out, CK274 is in clinical trials. It's an investigational medicine, but it's demonstrated in preclinical models and also in healthy volunteers that it has properties that may render it suitable as a new pharmaceutical. It binds to this mechanochemical enzyme called myosin, which drives the contractility of cardiac muscle. And by doing so, it's enabling uh, a relaxation of that force production in order to be able to be effective, we hope, potentially as will be borne out in clinical trials as a new medicine. So we're really excited about CK274. We also have other compounds, one called CK271, which is right behind CK274, 274 in phase two, 271 in phase one. Our scientists are continuing to persevere in this area and work towards advancement of still other cardiac myosin inhibitors. And I think that's one of the advantages of our being both a pioneer and a leader in this space is that we continually innovate looking for first generation, next generation, follow on compounds as ultimately may prove to be beneficial for a portfolio of medicines for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we're very excited about the potential of all of these molecules. So hypothetically speaking, we are looking for something a new agent, not a class that's already existing. We're not looking at beta blockers or calcium channel blockers or sodium channel blockers. We're looking at a completely different mechanism that we believe, based on the bench science and some other clinical trials, um, is going to alter the cardioenergetics, the energy that is derived from this hyperactive aspect of the cardiac sarcomere and what we believe to be the root cause of most hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So if we're able to alter those energetics, and again, we're living in the world of the hypothetical because we don't have clinical indication yet, what do we think is going to be the downstream effect of these agents? How are they going to change the functioning of the cardiac sarcomere? So everything we do in science and in medicine is incremental and we're building on uh, what is already known about this disease as has benefited tremendously from the work of your association. Um, but we're learning about limitations of existing therapies and where there may be unmet needs. 
currently, as you point out, beta blockers are used uh, for these patients, and so are surgical procedures, which have demonstrated very positive outcomes. But patients are still living with um, risk and uh, worry, and there are uh, tremendous unmet needs that new medicines can potentially address. So we do clinical research. We do clinical research alongside of existing medicines, as is a standard of care, and we understand what may be the advantages of combining medicines or as otherwise may be replacing and substituting for existing medicines. And all of this speaks to incremental gains as we benefit from advancing this field. We're doing clinical research with CK274 currently in a trial called Redwood HCM that's being conducted uh, both here in the United States and also uh, overseas. And Redwood HCM will teach us a lot about CK274 uh, against background therapy as we'll understand what might be the uh, incremental gains associated with combining therapies as could inform the design of a phase three trial. And our goal, our objective is to complete this phase two study by mid-year next year, engage regulatory authorities uh, in the second half of next year, as could also inform the start of a phase three trial by the end of next year. And CK274 looks to be a potential next generation drug candidate in this space. It's been specifically designed to have certain properties, physiochemical properties and other properties that may render it easier to use, may render it um, um, suitable for dose titration to get to target dose and steady state concentrations in blood within approximately one month. So to this point, CK274 has been studied in healthy subjects, healthy volunteers, and we're in the midst of studying it for the first time in patients with HCM. But we already know that it has certain properties that may render it next generation. It looks to be uh, safe in healthy volunteers and well-tolerated. It has pharmacokinetics that refers to the action of the drug in patients and in uh, their uh, blood, and it has pharmacokinetic properties a half-life of approximately two to three days. Because it takes uh, several half-lives for a drug to reach steady-state blood levels, we look to where we think um, with dose adjustments, we'll be getting to steady-state levels within approximately two weeks. So assuming that there might be at least one dose titration, a patient based on a single echo might get to a target dose within approximately one month. We see that as being convenient for patients, easier for physicians. Um, It also has uh, rapid reversibility. And as one is titrating a new medicine like this, one wants to ensure to get to the target range without overshooting or undershooting, and in doing so, being able to titrate more easily I think that's one of the potential advantages of a next generation approach such as this. But at the end of the day, what will ultimately matter is, is this drug safe? Is it effective? And how broadly applicable may it be to an array of patients who have HCM, who have different um, characteristics and who may be on different types of medicines, who may be um, uh, in different geographies? Ultimately, that's going to require clinical research, and hence why in phase three, our objective will be to advance CK274 to evaluate it as could become a potential standard of care for patients with HCM across a broad array of characteristics, concomitant medicines, um, geographies, risk factors. The goal with any next generation approach is to advance the field. And in cardiology, uh, we've seen many, many examples of wonderful first-generation approaches that lend support for a therapeutic hypothesis, but as next-generation compounds come forward, as may expand upon that and demonstrate utility for 
a broader array of patients who may benefit ultimately from a new mechanism of action. And that's our goal to advance the field with CK274. What is the timeline on the pathway? You're in a phase two right now. You're looking at a phase three for maybe next year or so. First, we'll talk about CK274, and then we'll talk about 71. So what is, yeah. your, what is your pathway timeline? So our, our goal will be to have the phase two data from Redwood HCM mid-year, start a phase three trial by the end of the year, and the timeline for that trial will be probably about one to two years, depending on how quickly it may enroll. To get ahead of that, we're already signing up centers, both in the U.S. and internationally, in order to be in a position to hopefully enroll this trial rapidly. As an example, in Redwood HCM, we are enrolling 18 patients per cohort, and there's two cohorts, so 36 patients in total in Redwood HCM. We're signing up more than 18 centers, so we'll have more centers than we need patients in each cohort, and that's as we are gearing up for a large phase three trial. We've recently entered into a collaboration with a um, new pharma company in China that's interested in developing CK274 in China, as would be part of a phase three clinical trials program, as well as we're looking at other countries throughout Asia and the world, the goal being to develop CK274 in phase three rapidly, but thoughtfully um, in an attempt to see if we could see this medicine potentially available to patients in the range of, let's say, 2024. Well, we certainly want more tools in the toolbox to help people with HCM all over the world. And while we are a U.S.-based organization, I'm happy to say that we are working towards a lot more international outreach. So I'd be very interested to meet some of your friends in China so we can get some patient advocacy going in China, which I'm sure will look very different than the United States. But we have to customize to the patient populations everywhere. You know, we know that one in 200-ish people, um, and I use the word ish very specifically, um, have a diagnosable HCM. And if we can find them in the United States and everywhere else, we have the opportunity to help families stay whole and maintain health and give them an opportunity of long-term survival. Well, that's the beautiful thing about um, clinical research and the kinds of partnerships that I think could be uh, constructed between patient advocacy groups like yours and the work we're doing. Having new medicines available for these patients will uh, inspire patients to become more actively engaged with their diagnosis, with their disease, will um, give them reason to participate in clinical research, and that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy as that will no doubt lead to better um, screening and identification of more patients who are living with HCM who may even be unaware. And I think ultimately it's the innovations in the pharmaceutical sciences that contribute to advancement of the medicine and the diagnoses, ultimately care that goes beyond pharmaceuticals. I also believe that when we partner together, we have the opportunity to bring down the cost of discovery. Um, For those of you who are not in the research game and have ever participated on the back end of a clinical trial, the hardest thing is to get patients to be recruited in and the processing of those patients. Once you're in and you're committed to the, the program, then things roll. But while you're waiting for that patient population, you're kind of stuck. Um, and we've been helpful so much so that the FDA actually asked us to come in and give a presentation on how to partner with industry. And we've come up with some unique ways to do so, to find those engaged, interested, and excited patients to ensure that they have an opportunity to participate in a clinical trial, which now... Even more so, even more so, I'll just add, the work you did and your colleagues did around patient-focused drug development was incredibly helpful and valuable to companies like ours, because what is oftentimes a deterrent to innovation is understanding what the regulatory landscape looks like, understanding what that construct for approval of a medicine looks like, and having clarity from FDA. And as you were elevating patient voice and having that conversation with FDA, 
that's information we soak in to inform how we design clinical trials to best answer the questions that patients have of a new medicine, that FDA has of a new medicine, and having um, an understanding of what that pathway looks like helps lower the cost of drug development, helps enable us to move faster, and everybody wins. I could not agree more. Um, we we have a very uh, engaged population, as do many other patient advocacy groups. We want answers. Um, you don't get answers without putting something on the table. And I've participated in probably a dozen clinical trials in my life to try to advance the science before things got even really bad for me and I ended up needing a transplant. I was involved in trials in the early 80s through the 90s up until my actual transplant and I would be happy to participate in another clinical trial for transplant patients because this is how we learn, this is how we grow. And if not for those patients who went before me, I wouldn't have the anti-rejection medication that I need today. And I think sometimes we forget that we're not just the person today, we're, we're us 20 years from now, and somebody's 20 years behind us, and we all have to give to science so that we can find better answers. So how has, to bring things to a little bit of a uh, 2020 tone, how has COVID affected clinical trials in your perspective? Yeah, so it has had effect on some clinical trials, and certainly as we anticipate COVID will bleed over into 2021 and beyond, we have to be thinking about the continuing effects of a pandemic. Um, In designing clinical trials and in conducting clinical trials, whereas you might have otherwise expected it would be easier for patients to come into clinical trial sites to perform certain assessments, we have to be thinking about which of those assessments could be performed at home. How might there be an opportunity to minimize the number of in-clinic visits and maybe do more telephonically or otherwise um, even consider where we might space out certain assessments? We've had to be adaptable to the fact that um, our clinical trials may not be priority number one in certain centers. We've had to suspend enrollment uh, for a while before reactivating it again. We've had to engage with investigators and patients, but also with the administrators, the lawyers, everybody who's involved in putting these trials together in a way that recognizes uh, the hierarchy of um, priorities. And uh, I think we, and I give credit to our team at Shadow Kinetics, have been incredibly mindful of where our clinical research fits in relative to these other priorities, but still pushing things forward. Our Redwood HCM study is on timeline, even as it had to be interrupted uh, for a few months with regard to uh, enrollment in connection with the pandemic. And that's a credit to all of our team members and sites who were able to, in the period in which patient enrollment was suspended, be able to advance the study in other ways, sign up more centers so that when enrollment was um, reactivated, we could be activating in a larger number of centers. So we're on timeline for movement from the first cohort in this trial to the second cohort towards the end of this year and be able to read out results by mid-year next year. I will say that as we were heading into the PFDD, the patient-focused drug development meeting that you mentioned earlier, and we were supposed to be a live meeting and then COVID happened, I was very impressed with how flexible the FDA became and how they understood that, okay, the world changed in an instant, and everything that we were doing, we have to rethink how we can do it differently. And I think they were very um, amenable to to change, and what I was hearing from them internally was, you know, they were going to work with all clinical trials to to keep things moving, and that meant that they were going to have to be a little bit uh, forgiving on some of the requirements, but not on the safety. That's what I heard. You know, we talk about heroes who are patients. We talk about heroes who are scientists. We don't often enough talk about heroes at the FDA. Uh, I think they are very, very mindful of the importance of what uh, role they play and work very constructively and cooperatively 
with patient groups, with sponsors like Cytokinetics, and they flex too, case in point, your uh, patient-focused drug development meeting, but in so many other ways, coming out very quickly with guidance as to how to conduct clinical trials during a pandemic, being flexible with regard to how one sequesters certain data in an analyzing it as might have been affected by a pandemic, and in thinking about accelerated pathways for new vaccines and treatments, I think these folks deserve a lot more credit than they're getting. I agree, and I wouldn't want their jobs for anything. So <laughs> it just seems like so much stress. I don't know how they – I hope they're getting some rest because we need them rested as well. So I'm going to we, – we've kind of hit a couple of the target points that I wanted to uh, talk to you about, and I'm going to open this up to some Q&A for a few moments. We have one question pending already. So if you do have any questions, feel free to use the uh, comment box below, and I'm, I'm monitoring that on the uh, very high-technology phone here. So I have two screens up simultaneously. This is what happens when you produce on a low budget, <laughs> but it's okay. So I want to talk about um, this other drug, this phase one, and can you give us a timeline on the, what's it, CK271, which sequentially seems to have come first, but... Um, what, what is going on with that trial? What is this for? How is it different than 74? So CK271 is another cardiac myosin inhibitor that uh, was discovered by our company scientists. We've advanced it to phase one, and it's chemically distinct from CK274, but its mode of action is similar, but it has different properties that uh, require elaboration in humans. It was advanced through research, um, and it represents an opportunity for us to potentially risk mitigate around CK274, but also consider how this mechanism may be developed for other indications and other populations of patients. And as I mentioned, there are other compounds even behind CK271 that we're advancing towards development. So we've learned, and this is where I think we as a biopharmaceutical company behave sometimes more like a pharmaceutical company in that every one of our programs that we advance is um, complemented by backups and follow-ons because ours is a risky business and it's in our um, interest and in the patient interest to constantly be bringing forward multiple medicines as represent a portfolio around a particular biology, science, and patient population. We don't know if something idiosyncratic may arise during clinical research. It happens often. But if you're committed to a purpose, you, you advance first generation, second generation, third generation, next in line compounds, compounds that have different binding sites on cardiac myosin, compounds that might potentially address mutations in cardiac myosin differentially. We don't know that yet. We're advancing the science and we're learning along the way. That's These are all tools in order to be able to untangle that science. So I, I'm going to go into at least a t pontification here. Um, we know that in HCM, we're dealing with, we believe primarily a genetic cause for the sarcomere to be abnormal. But there's people who don't know their genetic mutation yet. Could mean it's in a place we haven't looked for yet. But then there's also this group of patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure that we don't know the underlying etiology for. Is there hope, is there thought that some of these agents that we're looking at in HCM as the sandbox might have other options to be used for other patient populations outside of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy specific diagnosis? Absolutely, and yes, cytokinetic scientists were the first to um, conceive of a cardiac myosin inhibitor as a potential treatment for hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, obstructive and non-obstructive. We're also the first um, to be thinking about how there are subsets of patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction who may benefit from a cardiac myosin inhibitor those subsets of patients have hypercontractile ventricles. They have features of their disease that resemble non-obstructive HCM or even obstructive HCM. And there's a continuum of science and medicine that would benefit from its advancing 
CK274, CK271, and other compounds across this array of indications. So absolutely, yes. This is the beauty of new innovations in an area of molecular cardiology, where you can begin to cross-fertilize learnings from one population to another, as could benefit. Frankly, what we're doing in obstructive HCM has already benefited from learnings from advancements of uh, new pharmaceuticals in other therapeutic categories. And this is an area where HCM will inform other learnings. So that's how a company like ours focused to one area of biology builds a business, a business that ultimately addresses different populations, different indications with multiple medicines and creates a sustainable um, business that rewards not only shareholders, but also patients. That's a tricky line these days between balancing the needs of both. You know, you mentioned Myocardia earlier, who just sold to or is in the process of selling to Bristol-Myers for $13 billion. And I look at that number and I'm like, okay, that just flew out the window to stockholders. And while we appreciate them, I'm like, can we have some of that money back? <laughs> but I don't think we're getting that. But $13 billion on a similar compound tells us that people are watching and there's, there's something here. And whatever it is that's here will get worked out in time. We need, we need more time to understand how these work. Um, and hopefully... Hopefully, we'll have something meaningful in the toolbox. I don't think we're putting the surgeons out of a job anytime soon because it's not going to work for every anatomy. I don't think we're putting our invasive cardiologists out of work. I don't think we're putting HCM centers out of work. But I do believe we're going to kick things up a notch when there are better therapies. I know there are a great number of people behind the the screen saying, I don't want to know about my HCM status because I can't really do much about it anyway. But what if you could? What if we could what change if you the future? Could. What if you could? And, and I absolutely believe that there will be uh, opportunities to intervene with this disease with new pharmaceuticals soon. I think myocardia did an excellent job advancing Mavicamptin through clinical trials. And I think BMS recognizes the clinical opportunity as they are in a good position to capitalize and make that happen for the benefit of patients. But like any uh, area of medicine, there will be opportunities to improve upon a first-generation approach with a next-generation one and a one after that and expand the number of patients that could ultimately benefit. And that's where I think myocardia and BMS together, as well as cytokinetics and other likely competitors and companies in this space, will build a category of new medicines that patients will ultimately be the beneficiaries of. And I think that's where our interest as bio-entrepreneurs to start from where you began this conversation to now ultimately delivers on the promise of science for patients. So we do have a question in, um, and and I'm going to read it as it appears. Can you comment on disappointing recent news on secondary endpoints, um, I guess, of CK247, sorry, um, and the impact on potential HCM drugs under current trial. Okay. I think the questioner may be referring to a trial we recently announced called Galactic HF, which was studying our cardiac myosin activator for patients with heart failure, where it achieved its primary efficacy endpoint, but it missed on one of the secondary endpoints. Um so that's an entirely different... That's an upregulation, um, not a downregulation. Correct. So in that case, so Omicamp of Macarbal is a compound that we discovered many, many years ago. It's been in clinical trials since 2005, over 30 clinical trials that ultimately led to our conduct in partnership with Amgen to a phase three trial called Galactic. 8,000 patients, 35 countries, And that trial was looking at patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction to see if a cardiac myosin activator, omicamptive, could be associated with improvements in outcomes. And it did achieve its primary efficacy endpoint with a statistically significant effect on a composite 
of cardiovascular death and heart failure related events. But as to cardiovascular death by itself, which was one of the secondary endpoints, there was no effect observed. So it met on the primary, but didn't hit on that secondary. Um, that's um, data that will be presented at the American Heart Association meetings coming up November 13. And there's a lot more analyses ongoing with regard to that. But even that study teaches us a lot about heart failure and the mechanism of modulating cardiac myosin. And there are learnings that we're applying to the conduct of Redwood and other studies from even a um, drug candidate that works by an entirely different mechanism, activating cardiac myosin as opposed to inhibiting it as we're studying in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So as I said before, two steps forward, one step back, we're learning as we go. That learning gets applied to new clinical research. And our goal is to apply those learnings in such a way that we can advance CK274 as a new medicine potentially for patients with HCM. So the, the Q&A is slow today. That was the only one I have posted so far. So if you have a question, post it now because I'm going to wrap up with Robert because we've kind of gone over time. But Robert and I both kind of talk. So, you know, we're just talking, <laughs> we're just chilling here. Um, so we didn't have a harmonica today, um, which I was busting you about. But next time I get out there, I want to hear the harmonica. Um, what else should patients and the interested community know about what's happening in the future with cytokinetics? So um, cytokinetics is very seriously intent on advancing our cardiac myosin inhibitors for the potential treatment of HCM and other indications. It's become um, a high priority at our company. We're in the midst right now of preparing our goals and budgets for 2021. And as we do so, we think beyond 2021. And this program is going to get our highest uh, commitment in terms of investment spending and aggressive goal setting. Our company, and it's not just our scientists, but it starts with our scientists and it runs all throughout all of our employees are very committed to this high conviction purpose to seeing our pioneering leadership in this area of biology translate into new medicine. So I think patients with HCM should expect that, should hold us accountable to that, should recognize that we're gonna be a leader in this area and want to be understanding the disease from the patient standpoint, from the caregiver and family member standpoint, so that we can be certain that we're designing clinical trials and developing a profile for our potential new medicines that address what matters to patients. Being that this is an area that is still somewhat evolving, we need to understand what are the appropriate patient-reported outcome tools that we should be using in clinical trials that meet uh, expectations for patients, but also FDA and other regulatory authorities. What are the things that matter? Because you can measure a lot of things in clinical trials, some of which don't matter. And it's important that we be assessing the mechanism of action for what will translate into meaningful benefits for patients uh, with HCM. And those are not just clinical benefits, but those are also economic benefits. We need to understand the economic burden of this disease and where a new medicine can hopefully demonstrate that it's not only treating symptoms and addressing outcomes, but producing economic gain. And that's something that matters to us as our health economics team will also be diving into this space. I am so looking forward to meeting with your healthcare economics team because this has been an issue I've been trying to put my finger on as a small nonprofit for many years without an economics team, um, the, the cost of HCM, not only in lost production because you're having bad days, but the lost loved one. I always go back to my sister's death at 36 with two children, just early teens, that Social Security then steps in and has to raise, in a sense, financially. So nobody calculates the death from HCM and the cost of HCM. And nobody calculates the mental anguish and the grief process that does kill production and distracts your mind. And all of those factors have never been considered. And when you talk about creating tools, 
you know, HCM has its good days and its bad days. Just because you're feeling good one day and you happen to be taking a trial drug does not necessarily mean it's because of the trial drug. And benefits are multiple level. And you have to figure out how best to, to, to measure, report, and make sure that everybody understands what we're talking about. And that, I think, is our collective challenge as a community involved in HCM, whether no matter what side you're on, whether you're a clinician, an administrator in an HCM program, or in biotech. We need to understand that the, the burden of disease isn't always what it appears because we can have good days and you can have good stints of time with HCM, but how do you quantify the downtime, the bad time, and make sure that we're focused on improving not only quality of life today at whatever age you're at, but making sure that it stays good for a long time. We know that our families have multiple generations and we need to take care of the ones before and after. You're absolutely right. And you mentioned quality of life, even quality of life, depending on who you speak to, takes on different dimensionality. We need to have good instruments for measuring quality of life in HCM patients so that they have good test, retest, reliability in clinical trials, high fidelity in order to be able to be meaningfully interpreted by FDA. And the same thing is with regard to the health economics. We need to understand the economic burden of the disease and where new interventions, whether they be surgical or pharmaceutical, can ultimately translate into um, pharmaco or other economic gains for society and for patients and their families. So we're on the team and we want to partner to make all of these things happen for our community. And I, I always get a kick out of looking backwards to look forwards. And, you know, you think 22 years ago when, you know, you guys started uh, Cytokinetics and 25 years ago when we were a kitchen table startup and we both had the same idea. How do we make it better? How do, how do we decrease the burden of diseases, in my case, disease, and, and how do we make things better for the next generation? So I um, am happy that you're on the track of HCM Therapeutics, and we really appreciate not only you, but everybody at Cytokinetics who's working on trying to solve this very complex problem. We want to offer a partnership, and we, we understand that these are synergistic relationships. And I think society in general needs to understand that pharma's not always the bad guy. Sometimes they've done some bad things. But you can partner in a positive, productive way to hit the end points that we all need, and that is better quality of life, better drugs, and hopefully at a reasonable cost. But we know that there's a cost to discovery, so we all have to balance that and accept the the positives and the negatives and try to work together as best as possible. So, Robert, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and we had some challenges getting organized, but Thanks for sticking with it, and we hope to hear back from you maybe in Q2 of next year, see where we are with the trials, and continue the conversation. Thank you, Lisa. You know, Cytokinetics knows a thing or two about being a resilient and persevering, and in many ways, I think we share that with patients with HCM. Um, we very, very much look forward to partnering with your organization and, in general, with the HCM community to advance new medicines. We share uh, a common purpose and interest and uh, look forward to making progress together. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And we're going to conclude on Facebook now. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd 
and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time.